everyone, welcome to this episode of Grim Tales from the Garden State, the show where we follow the dark stories and twisted threads that have been woven in the great state of New Jersey. I'm your host, Mrs. B, and today's story is about Robert O. Marshall, an Ocean County husband and father who schemed and cheated until it landed him in a jail cell. If this name sounds familiar to you, that's because there was a book entitled Blind Faith by Joe McGinnis, which was then made into a TV movie in 1990. This is one of those cases that originally looked one way, but the real monster was soon to be revealed. Greed, lust, sociopathy. I don't think this man understood the word integrity or divorce. So he was willing to do anything to retroactively get the life of his dreams. And before we get started today, here's today's terrifying tidbit. The Australian Institute of Criminology found that out of 162 contract killings from 1989 to 2002, life insurance payouts were the most common reason that people were murdered by hitmen. I know that this fact isn't from the U.S. or Jersey, but from what I think most of us have probably observed, that seems to be the case over here as well. So next time your partner keeps hounding you by getting life insurance, maybe start packing a bag. So let's start with the setting of this story. Tom's River is a town in Ocean County, which I'm declaring right here is Central Jersey. I don't want to hear anything about that. So anyway... Tom's River is the Ocean County County Chair with the current population of a little over 90,000 people. It's described as a sparse suburban, so not farmy, but not a super metropolitan, trafficy town either. The town leads more conservative, and about 80% of people own their homes, and 63% have at least some college education. In the 1970s, 80s, it was a very affluent town where many executives and C-suite employees decided to settle down with their families. Think country club, tennis court in the backyard, convertible type town. Very bougie, very luxe. The New Jersey Chili and Salsa Cook-Off, as well as the New Jersey Ice Cream Festival, are also held in Tom's River. This town is home to many beaches located along the Jersey Shore, like the Ortley Beach, Normandy Beach, Ocean Beach, and many others. It's a vacation spot for a lot of people in the Tri-State area, but the people who live there often vacation in Atlantic City. The 1979 film Amityville Horror was actually filmed in Tom's River, despite the real event happening in Long Island, New York. And according to Neighborhood Scout, it has a crime rate pretty equal with the average of all other towns and cities in the U.S. And funnily enough, the Robert Marshall case actually gave Tom's River national attention because other than that, it's pretty much just your regular large suburban town. Robert Oakley Marshall was born on December 16th, 1939 in Queens, New York. He is regrettably a Sagittarius just like myself. Robert was raised by his father, Howard Marshall, who was a sporting goods salesman and a devout Catholic mother. He moved around a lot and lived in 10 homes before landing in Haverstown, Pennsylvania, when he was 16. Something that kept him occupied was playing the drums because he was not focusing on school. He failed 11th grade, but when he went to summer school, he met a boy who was starting a band and conveniently, you know, Robert was a drummer, so he was able to join the band. One day, he played his show at a going-away party for one of the band members' older brothers who was shipping off to the Air Force. This is where he met 15-year-old Maria Pazinski, the daughter of a doctor. Maria was born on March 13, 1942, in the great city of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, the only child to her parents, Vincent and Helen Pazinski. She went to Catholic school near Philly, sang in the choir, and was loved by her teachers and peers. Her small family was very tight-knit, and being Catholic, her parents were very protective of their daughter. They did not want her dating anybody, especially not some drummer who couldn't pass the 11th grade. However... Maria was a teenager, so she snuck around and secretly dated Robert for a couple of years until college when she finally revealed to her parents that they were dating. Maria was kind of a trophy for Robert because of how beautiful, sweet, and innocent she was. Robert had come from a more rough-and-tumble upbringing, but he had this adorable, shiny girlfriend to flash at others and brag about. 
Now, as we previously established, Robert was never really that good at school. He enlisted in the Naval Reserve, planning to attend the United States Naval Academy in Annapolis, Maryland, but he failed his SAT, so he didn't get accepted there. Maria's father never liked Robert, and looking back, he probably saw something that poor Maria couldn't see. He saw Robert as lazy and too showboaty, pushing material possessions to the forefront to appear superior to others. But eventually, Robert graduated from Villanova, but he was far from valedictorian. He was able to smooth-talk his professors into bringing his Ds to Cs because, well, Cs get degrees. Robert took his 1.9 GPA and moved to Pensacola, Florida with Maria to complete his flight training in November 1963. The two got married on December 28, 1963, and moved to Toms River, New Jersey. Let's jump forward to late summer 1984. The couple ended up having three boys, Robert Jr. or Robbie, Chris, and John. 42-year-old Maria was a stay-at-home mom. 44-year-old Robert was an insurance broker, where on his first year of selling insurance, he earned his company over $2 million in sales, which skyrocketed him to the top 50 salesmen list in the country for the company. Despite not having been a very studious man himself, Robert had high expectations for his son's grades and conduct at school. He also acted as the chairman of the United Way of Monmouth and Ocean Counties. The organization's mission was to, quote-unquote, bridge the gaps to education, financial stability, and health for every person in our community. And they listed their values as having integrity, fairness, ethics, and respect for one another. Huh. So, overall, Robert had good standing in his town. Maria was also well-respected in the community. She was gorgeous, blonde, graceful, and she dressed well. Think prime 80s rich woman chic. She was also a dedicated wife and mother. In 1984, their two older sons were going to Villanova and Lehigh Valley, while their youngest son was 13, so he was in middle school. Her and her teenage sons had a very close relationship that was the envy of the mothers in their circle. She was proud of and excited for her boys, and she loved her family. The family was well known at the country club and church. They all drove luxury vehicles. For example, Robert drove a, a red 1980 Cadillac Eldorado, and Robbie, the oldest, drove a yellow Mustang. All in all, they seem like your typical upper-class suburban family, but we're here, so that's obviously not the case. On Wednesday, September 6th, a couple days after Labor Day, the beaches and casinos are a little bit more open because the summer season has just ended. My Jersey people, y'all know the joy of post- or pre-season beach trips. Robert and Maria took a trip down to Atlantic City. They made this trip often because they loved gambling down at the slots. Robert wanted to take the couple out for a night of eating expensive dinners and gambling at Harris Casino at about 8.30 p.m. At about 12.30 a.m., the couple left the casino and hopped on the Garden State Parkway. Almost back to Tom's River, the two stopped off at the unlit Oyster Creek picnic area off the side of the highway. Maria had fallen asleep in the passenger seat, and Robert got out of the car to fix a flat tire. While Robert was changing the tire, he was knocked unconscious with a tire iron and robbed of roughly $2,000, and his wife had been shot in the back twice and she was pronounced dead at the scene. Robert was taken to the hospital so his head wounds could be treated, and the police questioned him there. He relayed the story of changing the tire, being hit in the head by a random villain from behind, getting robbed, and his wife getting killed. When Robert returned home, he grieved heavily with his three sons, confused and terrified that someone could harm their family in such an egregious way like that for what seemed like no reason. But obviously, Robert was not confused, and he was not terrified, because he was never in any real danger. It turns out that our boy Rob had been cheating on his beautiful wife with a woman from their country club named Saran Kroshar, who was a married school administrator for almost a year and a half. He was also over $300,000 in debt from gambling and business expenses that was continuously climbing. 
Now, let's think about reasonable ways that Robert could have solved this problem. Now let's think of an absolutely ridiculous way that he could have solved his problems. But now you might be thinking, but wait, he was changing the tire and got hit in the head when Marie was killed. He couldn't have done it. And you know, you're right. Robert Marshall did not shoot Maria Marshall that night off the side of the road. But he knows who did. Let's rewind to December 1983, about nine months prior to the crime. This was when it was first noted by his mistress that Robert really just wanted to kill his wife. He figured he'd stop paying for his life insurance and start paying Maria's life insurance premium. So her life insurance was worth about $1.4 million. Saran said he told her, I just wish she wasn't around. Do you know anyone who would take care of it? What an odd question to ask someone. Anyone. But now, how to kill her. Robert was not interested in getting his own hands dirty, so in May of 1984, he reached out to a Louisiana man named Robert Cumber that he thought could help him with his little problem. Cumber then referred Robert to another Louisiana man named Billy Wayne McKinnon, who had previously been a sheriff's officer. It's very upsetting and disturbing that someone who had formerly worked in law enforcement was now taking on hitman gigs. But anyway, already having been in Louisiana, Robert offered McKinnon $5,000 to meet him in Atlantic City to discuss the details of the hit. Robert and McKinnon meet up in AC on June 18th, and Robert offers him $65,000 to kill Maria that day. They discuss different ways that Maria could be killed. He paid him $7,000 for just the meeting. It gave him a picture of his wife and their house for some reason, for maximum clarity, I suppose. Altogether, Robert would have paid McKinnon nearly $80,000 to kill his wife, most of which would be coming from Maria's life insurance payout, so we see that this policy had a lot riding on it. Obviously, the goal was a murdered wife and an innocent, dumbfounded husband. Robert had to be at the scene when the crime was carried out so that he couldn't be implicated in the murder. Who would think the virtuous, wealthy man with the perfect family would kill his wife, right? Things didn't exactly go to plan initially. McKinnon did not kill Maria that day on June 18th. He just went home. He didn't kill her on July 19th when he felt pressured by Robert to get the job done because he had sent McKinnon even more money. This time... Robert was going to pull over to a rest stop and run in to use the bathroom while McKinnon shot Maria to make it look like a robbery gone wrong. Robert wanted her dead before Labor Day because I guess that was more convenient for his schedule. Flash forward back to the night of September 6th. Robert meets up with McKinnon around 9.30 outside the casino and tells him that they would be leaving around midnight. Robert and Maria pulled off to the Oyster Creek picnic area. Robert pretended to be changing the tire. He really just crouched down to make it easier for the assailant to knock him over the head and so that his location when the crime was committed would be accurate. When the police pull up, Robert is in hysterics, insisting that this incident was just a robbery gone wrong and he showed absolutely no guilt, remorse, or hesitation. But even so, the cops weren't really buying it. Why was he the one robbed and only knocked in the head, but Maria was just straight up murdered? The pair had no known enemies and they were essentially in the middle of nowhere. Everything seemed a little too convenient. What Robert didn't know was that Maria knew what he was up to. She had confided in her friends that she knew he was being unfaithful, so she hired a private investigator to confirm her suspicions. She also learned that they were in much more debt than she knew about and that Robert had forged her signatures on loans, effectively messing up her credit. On the other side of this love triangle, Saran told police that she and Robert had planned on dumping their current partners or running away together to live in Beach Haven. She confirmed his financial woes as well. Between these two sources, the police were able to piece together a motive by the end of the day of September 7th. 
On September 21st, the police show up at Robert's house and bring him in for questioning at the station. There, they let him know that they know about all of his correspondence with McKinnon, his infidelity, and his debt. The jig was up. But Robert was not going to let this story go. The cops had the long-distance call records and the receipts for the Western Union wire transfers. They talked to his mistress. They spoke to Maria's friends and confidants. That evidence evidence wasn't just going to disappear just because he wouldn't admit to it. And admit to it, he never would. On September 27th, so about a week after the police had confronted Robert about everything, they were notified that he had checked into the Best Western Motel in Lakewood, so a little ways away from Tom's River. Investigators set up surveillance at the motel, and at 11.30 p.m., Robert leaves his room and goes to the front office of the motel. After he returns to his room, the investigator speaks to the clerk who said that Robert had put some letters in the outgoing mail tray. The investigator looked into the tray and saw two letters. One was addressed to Joseph, I think this is pronounced Doherty or Doherty, Esquire. On the outside of the envelope, the investigator read, to be opened only in the event of my death. So dramatic, right? So the investigator snatches up the letters and calls for backup. When backup arrives, they bust into Robert's room and find him there asleep. So they they wake dude up and ask him if he had taken any kind of substance. Robert said that he had enough sleeping medicine and a cup of soda to kill him, but that he had fallen asleep before he had gotten the chance to drink it. He had allegedly intended to commit suicide at the same time his wife had been murdered, but he'd overslept. Inside the envelope, investigators find a letter a contract to sell some properties, and an audio tape that had Robert's voice on it. The tape discussed Robert's relationship with uh, Saran, you know, the mistress, how he wanted to leave Maria within a month, and his quote-unquote spiral of debt that accelerated to almost $200,000 that he was determined to pay off, but he just couldn't climb out of the hole. Robert also claimed that he didn't hire McKinnon to kill Maria. No, are you guys crazy? No, no, no. He hired him to see if she knew that he was cheating. I guess he thought the cops would buy that because McKinnon used to be a cop and I guess could kind of like act as a PI of some sort. And, but if that were the intention, how and why did they interact that way off the side of the parkway? How could it possibly have jumped from, hey, can you just like find out if she's on to me to, oh, whoops, I killed her. On the tape, Marshall straight up said that he had sent McKinnon $5,500 in two installments and had given him an additional $800 at Harrah's the night of the homicide. So yeah, he tried to commit suicide because he knew the law was coming down on him, even though he was still claiming to be innocent. What a class act right here, right? So the authorities had what they needed, and they arrested 44-year-old Robert O. Marshall on December 19, 1984. Billy McKinnon took a plea deal and pleaded guilty to conspiracy to commit murder. He told the jury that Robert had hired him to kill Maria Marshall, but that it was some other dude named Larry Thompson who had actually committed the act. Although charged with killing Maria, Thompson was acquitted because of his alibi that was backed up by his son and his wife back in Louisiana. They said that he was at the dentist in Shreveport, Louisiana on the day of the murder, and they had a receipt from the dentist that was made out to Thompson. But his wife was the one who was actually at the dentist, and she covered for him. Turns out, he actually did kill Maria, and in 2014, he admitted to it while he was in prison for an unrelated charge. The wife and son can't be charged with perjury for lying on the stand because of Jersey's five-year statute of limitations law for perjury. This lie makes no sense because Maria was killed around midnight. What dentist's office is open around midnight? Thompson was brought into the fold by two middlemen, and he was the actual trigger man. Robert and Thompson had never met or seen each other before. 
Because Thompson had come up from behind like Robert had agreed with McKinnon, it wasn't even totally clear who had committed the crime at the time. It makes sense though because McKinnon had punked out of the hit like three times. But, unfortunately, because of double jeopardy, Thompson couldn't be tried again for the same crime after he had already been determined to be not guilty. Now, don't get too upset. His earliest date for parole was 2071 and he was 72 at the time of the admission, so he, he's still getting got. He's not really getting away with anything. But anyway, on March 5th, 1986, it took the jury 90 minutes to make their decision. Robert O. Marshall was convicted and sentenced to death by lethal injection for capital murder. He spent his stay in prison at Southwood State Prison in Bridgeton, New Jersey. As an aside, anytime a jury comes to a decision this quickly, I kind of have to laugh because I can only assume that they all felt the same way and just sat in the room chatting to make it seem like they were seriously deliberating amongst themselves, but they knew the decision that they were going to come to. Robert appealed a lot to get his sentence reduced. He was on death row for 18 years until a federal court ruled in April 2004 that he had been inadequately represented by counsel during his sentencing process. He was resentenced to life in prison on August 18, 2006. Robert became eligible for parole in December of 2015 after having satisfied the minimum 30 years. His two older sons, Robbie and Chris, are believed to have testified against his release. When being resentenced, Robert admitted to having made terrible mistakes and said that he accepted full responsibility for his actions that led to Maria's death. But he never admitted specifically to hiring anyone to kill her, so I'm not sure what actions he was referring to if not the one that, you know, directly caused her death. Robert Marshall died on February 21st, 2015 after having a massive stroke still in prison. So a few points to wrap up a couple of loose ends. Robert Cumber, the first guy Robert asked to kill his wife, was charged and convicted of being an accomplice to the murder and was sentenced to life in prison. The prosecution pointed out that Maria's actions were actually left in a brown cardboard box of the funeral home for over a year after her death. Robert explained that the family had planned to bury the ashes in Florida as Maria had requested, I'm assuming in her will, but that his arrest had gotten in the way of their trip to Florida. So now he blames the prosecution for his lack of concern about his wife. Sir, you don't respect your wife when she was alive. Why should we believe that this is when you would have started caring? The elder two Marshall boys believed he was guilty, but they were relieved when the death penalty was taken off the table. Chris, the middle son, said, There's this vindictive happiness that he's gone now. He's no longer a drain on anyone. The youngest son, John, is the only one who still believes in his father's innocence. Our girl, Saran, is still married to the man that she cheated on. Although she cooperated fully in the investigation, I'm not sure how she feels about the whole situation. Life can seem hopeless when you're hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt and you've fallen out of love with your partner, but I can guarantee you that plotting their murder is not the way out. A divorce, setting up a payment plan, and pulling back on his expenses could have at least somewhat solved his problems. Maria Marshall was a loving mother who just wanted a happy and comfortable life. It's a very difficult situation when a parent kills another parent because where does that leave their kids? The older Marshall boys were in college, but John was only about 15 when his father went to prison for life and at that point was sentenced to death. I can only hope that they've gotten the support and counseling they needed. I read that in the 90s, Chris was actually charged with domestic violence and also had a mistress, so I guess the apple doesn't fall too far from the tree. But anyway, thanks for listening, everyone. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Grim Tales from the Garden State. Don't forget to rate, review, and follow this podcast. I'll see you all next week. Goodbye!